Welcome to the Old Man Sailing Podcast. I'm John Passmore, and today I have for you some companions, some comfort food, and something completely different, because I'm going to read to you from my novel, Trident. It all started with the geraniums. I was about to start a 1,200-mile race, and somebody gave me a geranium. Now, this might not seem particularly sensible, but it was a nice thought. Something homely, something that I could love and nurture. It should be noted at this point that the donor was not a sailor, and certainly not another competitor in the race, but, being the only one taking a houseplant, I achieved a certain notoriety, especially considering that the geranium carefully nurtured in the bookshelf, made it to the finish. The following year, when the race was 2,400 miles, another well-wisher decided that it would be a fine thing to keep the tradition going, and presented me with two geraniums. The bookshelf being full of books, this time the extra crew were lashed onto the backstay like mutineers. They didn't make it past the first gale. I have never really been sentimental about ship's mascots. I don't give a name to the self-steering. There is no gnome in the cockpit, as Bill Parks always used to carry aboard Sherpa Bill. And now, of all things, I have a teddy bear. It wasn't my idea. Last autumn I called into Brixham and met my sister, who lives in Exeter. We had a good catch-up, and then she produced the bear. Apparently, our mother had bought it for our father a few days before he died, and now my sister was giving it to me. Obviously, I couldn't just throw it away. How could I refuse it? So, instead, I made appreciative noises, and as soon as she had gone, banished the bear to the forecastle with all the sails and the folding bicycle and what not. And there he stayed, unloved and ignored, and I'm sure my father would have understood. He was not a sentimental man either. But also, he would have understood that I couldn't just dump the thing. One day my sister might come back and ask about the bear. And now, down in the West Country once more, and due to meet her for lunch once again, the bear came to mind. I would have to get him out. Apparently they do this at Buckingham Palace. There is a flunky whose sole responsibility is to see that any visiting potentate will find their gifts prominently displayed and Her Majesty fully versed in their history. Me, I just got the bear out and jammed him in a convenient space at the chart table. And there he sits, looking over my shoulder, and I hate to say this, but since he's been there we have had no major disasters unlike the months of his exile when, as followers of this blog will be aware, not everything went according to plan. Now, I don't talk to him, he hasn't got a name, and if anyone remarks on him, I am very disparaging and explain that he's really nothing to do with me. All the same, if we should avoid any more disasters, and I am allowed to dismiss him as somebody else's sentimental notion, then he can stay. Stop press. It's no good, after some surprising success in the engineering department, 
well, it certainly surprised me, I found myself referring to the bear as the chief engineer. I think he might just be a fixture. The passenger. When a seabird wants to rest, it just lands on the water. How convenient. You can see them sitting happily on the roughest seas. Only when a breaking crest threatens to swamp them do they lift off and fly to another untroubled patch of water. Sometimes it's just on the next wave. But that's fine for seabirds. They are among the very few species that can do everything. Swim, walk and fly. But what about a land bird faced with a vast expanse of open sea beneath it? What about Pidgey? Of course, the original Pidgey landed on board Francis Chichester's Gypsy Moth 3 during the first single-handed transatlantic race. He fed her and made her a nest in the cockpit cave locker. She stayed for days and made a dreadful mess of it. She was a racing pigeon, and she was lost. They do get lost sometimes and some never return home, flying instead in the wrong direction across featureless oceans until they can fly no more and fall out of the sky to drown. Lime Bay, off the coast of Devon, is not quite the Atlantic Ocean, but there, sitting on the spray hood, displaying a certain haughty sense of what are you going to do about it, sat a pigeon. Birds on boats are not uncommon. Anything that provides a safe haven in the middle of miles and miles of inhospitable water is going to get colonised. After all, look what happens to places like Gannet Rock in the Channel Islands. It appears that Pidgey, looking down and seeing Samsara making her way sedately from Torquay to Pool, had the same idea. So, when I poked my head up to have a look around, there she was, perched on the spray hood. It's happened with sparrows and thrushes, tiny, unidentifiable bundles of feathers have all had a ride over the years, but this latest arrival did not scamper away when I popped up. In fact, she was quite happy to be stroked with a finger. But then this was no ordinary pigeon. Round her legs were two rubber bands stamped with numbers. Like the original Pidgey, she was a racing pigeon. We set about getting to know each other. From the very beginning I assumed she was a girl, on account of her very fluffy bloomers and beautiful green necklace. She accepted a drink, and then another, but she scorned the ship's shop-bought sliced bread. We were getting along so well that I thought I might mention that if she wanted to make a mess, then the clean canvas of the spray hood was perhaps not the best place, which may be why, five minutes later, she did just that. I would have liked to ask her where she was going, how long she intended to stay, but for that I would have to talk to her owner. It was not until I picked up the 4G signal near Portland that I looked up her numbers on the Welsh Homing Pigeon Union website and ended up talking to Gerald Thomas of Merthyr Tidville. Mr. Thomas was 79 years old and had been racing pigeons for as long as he can remember. He is not a sentimental man. He doesn't give them names, and certainly not Pidgey, given that he has 60 of them. And he is philosophical when one of them is late home. 
Oh, I expect that. He'll turn up one way or another when he finds his way. Oh, Pidgey's a boy, then. Oh, we sent them to France to be released this time. Usually we send them to Belgium. Maybe he went to Belgium first because he knew his way home from there. But it's very good of you to give him a drink and let him have a rest. I said the pleasure was all mine. It was getting hard to remember that this was a pigeon we were talking about. Somewhere near Portland, Bill, Pidgey left to continue on his way. When I looked out, he just wasn't there anymore. He had left behind him a mess for me to remember him by. Mr. Kipling This is me being philosophical. Five days into a passage from Suffolk to the Outer Hebrides, which is about as far as you can get without actually leaving the country, and I am in the northeast corner of Scotland, and I've been listening to gale warnings for the past 48 hours, and the Navstex machine has just spewed out the following information. Sea area chromity. Gale now ceased. I could have told them that. If I poke my head out of the hatch, my hat does not get blown off. Not to put too fine a point on it, there is no wind at all. None. We are going nowhere. I woke up from my afternoon nap, to differentiate it from my morning nap, my evening nap and my various night-time naps, to the sound of sails slatting from side to side, the boom banging and the self-steering clonking. This is what happens when the wind suddenly stops. One minute it is blowing a strong wind, as the meteorologists would have it, and the next you have calm. I looked it up. Sea state, calm, glassy, like a mirror. This is not even a force one, which has ripples like scales are formed. This is when the old man must stop thinking about progress. After all, this is not a race. I have no one to measure myself against, so a distraction is what is needed. There are two distractions on this boat. One is Mr. Kipling's cherry bakewell tarts, and the other is Mr. Kipling's French fancies. If you're not familiar with British supermarket shelves, Mr. Kipling is a baker. He has a little corner shop just off the high street where he produces the most wondrous cakes and pastries, a sort of Willy Wonka of the bakery world. As often as not, he will pop an extra macaroon into your paper bag with a conspiratorial wink, as if to say, Don't tell Mrs. Kipling. At least, that is the image behind the brand dreamed up by the advertising agency employed many years ago by the vast conglomerate Crafts, or Unilever perhaps, which owns the Mr. Kipling brand. Anyway, I was in Sainsbury's doing the last-minute vitchling, serious stuff like corned beef and porridge oats, when I couldn't help noticing that Mr. Kipling's cherry bakewell tarts and his French fancies were on special offer. And do we love a special offer? So far, so good. The colourful boxes were stowed away with everything else. At least, the cherry bakewell tarts were. What happened to the French fancies? I have not the faintest idea. To coin a line from Titanic, 
Find them, Lovejoy. Find them. Normally, this wouldn't be a problem. They would turn up. But a calm does funny things to the mind. Suddenly, a French fancy was the only thing that would do. Previous love affairs with cherry bakewell tarts were forgotten in the frantic search. Digestives cast aside, tonics, caramel wafers chucked in with the cooking sauces, packets and packets of penguin biscuits, why so many, ended up with the rusty chopped tomatoes. There was a moment when I sat on my haunches in the middle of the not very large cabin, surrounded by packets and tins and jars, and came to my senses. The logic went like this. The French fancies were here. It was just that I couldn't see them. Like looking for the butter in the fridge. I'm looking for butter in a golden wrapper. How am I supposed to see butter in a plain wrapper? So, here was the deal. I would make a cup of tea and have one of Mr. Kipling's cherry bakewell tarts. Only after that would I put everything away, and if, in the course of restoring order, I happened to chance upon the French fancies, well, I could reward myself with one of those as well, and another cup of tea. And do you think I found them? Of course I found them, right next to the cherry bakewell tarts only they were in a slightly smaller, colourful box. French fancies are smaller than tarts, it makes sense. I was looking for a box the same size. I had hardly finished the last mouthful, carefully collecting the crumbs by squashing them with my finger. I must be watchful for deteriorating personal habits, by the way, when I realised that the whole world had leaned over a bit more and there was a delightful chuckling sound as the water started moving past the hull. We were on our way again. Settled in. Day 11, and I've settled into the voyage. I know this because it is the fourth day of strong headwinds, and I just got the clarinet out for half an hour, and now I'm sitting here writing this. In effect, life goes on. Until now, I would spend hours at the chart table fretting about whether to tack or worrying about not getting a Navtex weather forecast, but then, as if on cue, today has been a very good day. It began when I looked out on my hourly inspection and found the trailing generator had come partly adrift. It could wait. I could go back to sleep. Do it later. Do it after breakfast. And that's what I would have done yesterday. When it mattered to me that it was 4.30 a.m. and any sensible person should have been asleep, now suddenly I found myself saying, do it now. I looked at Chiefy. He regarded me coldly from his perch behind the chart table. Apparently I needed a stuffed bear wearing a Guernsey and a red neckerchief to help me to remember that if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing now. It was while I was attending to the generator that I looked down at the self-steering. This had been troubling me greatly with its rhythmic clonking, which echoed throughout the engine compartment like a sound box. I assumed it had something to do with my not drilling the holes in exactly the right place. I had tried packing the joints with little pieces of rubber. I had makeshift lashing holding it in alignment. But now I looked closely, 
Wasn't that belt loose? In fact, wasn't that boat about to fall out at any moment? Surprise, surprise, it doesn't clonk anymore. Over the course of the next couple of hours I found the key to the battery compartment and the washing up brush in with the lubricants and underneath the pasta and then I found out how to take the boat and make her go faster, more sail. It felt to me that I was putting too much strain on the rig driving through big seas in a welter of spray but she does love it. Mind you, it makes life on board something of an acquired taste. My world is permanently healed to 25 degrees and hitting a big wave at five knots is enough to lift you off your feet and if you happen to be in the loo at the time well I'll leave that to your imagination. It would be easy to complain about this. Indeed, I have a suspicion that I may have been complaining to myself for the past three days, more if you count the calm coming up the North Sea. But no, that's just what we happen to have at the moment. In fact, now I think it might be lunchtime. It's ten past four. And the trailing generator has been making so much electricity at five knots that the other half of last night's beer might even be cold. Here is an alarming statistic. In just 15 years, the number of prescriptions issued by family doctors in the UK has increased almost threefold, an additional 600 million a year. Four times as many people now take five drugs or more, almost half are in their 70s and beyond. Three times as many take ten or more. This is alarming. And it's the reason why I don't take any pharmaceutical products at all. If you want to read the argument, you can find a full article by the author, Dr. James Lefanu, who is the medical correspondent of the London Daily Telegraph. His book, Too Many Pills, how too much medicine is endangering our health and what we can do about it is available from the publisher's Little Brown. But you can read about it on my blog. Just go to the Good Health page at oldmansailing.com. Fair Isle I may never come back to Fair Isle. After all, how many people visit Fair Isle in the first place? A tiny lump of rock midway between the Orkney Islands and the Shetlands off the north coast of Scotland. It is barely more than a mile long and famous for two things, Fair Isle sweaters and seabirds. And if I showed any sense of occasion, I should go ashore and look at it. But then I'm not supposed to be here at all. I had safely passed it to the south and very forbidding it looked in the oily yellow light of a stormy dawn. I had chanced to hit the Fair Isle Channel at the exact moment the tide turned against me, and much stronger than I expected it proved to be. So, instead of popping out into the Atlantic, as according to the plan, the track on the plotter seemed to be going backwards and forwards over the same stretch of sea and the shipping forecasts occasionally gale eight seemed to have become a fixture. By breakfast time I had the storm trysail set and was calculating that I could always heave to and slide backwards the way I'd come. And then 
unbidden, a bored Scottish voice filled the cabin. It's always a bit alarming for the single-handed sailor when this happens, but if you will leave the radio turned on, then it's bound to happen. Reception was poor, and while it was obvious this was some sort of Coast Guard broadcast, I couldn't make out where he was based, and worse still, when he started reading out the gale warning, Gale Force 8 to Severe Gale Force 9, I seemed to miss the part where he explained which sea area this referred to. If it was Area Feral, then it was bad news. A gale is bad enough, but a severe gale is disproportionately worse, like earthquakes on the Richter scale. Then came the clincher. Outlook for the following 24 hours. Northwesterly gales continuing. There are times when common sense takes over. Fairal was just five miles away, with a narrow rocky inlet called North Haven, which offered good protection from northwesterlies. I could be there in little over an hour. It took longer, of course, these things always do, but now Samsara lies at anchor in an impossibly small space between the pier, the rocks, the slipway, and an awkwardly placed lobster pot just opposite a huge ocean-going fishing boat hauled up in what appears to be a man-made gully hewn out of the rock. I'm beginning to realise what kind of weather ranks as normal up here. So now the charcoal stove is fired up, the wet clothes which festooned the cabin have been gradually dried and put away, and there appears to be no mobile phone signal and only Radio 1. I could have blown up the dinghy and gone ashore to explore, but quite honestly I don't want to. At times like this, your world can get very small. I had a comfort lunch of beans and eggs. The other half of last night's mixed bean stew only needed warming up for dinner. Seems like a lot of beans. Thank heavens I picked up a cheap lighter in a convenience store last summer, just in case. The gas lighter is packed up and all the matches are damp. Meanwhile, the awkwardly placed lobster pot marker turns out to be a seal which remains motionless for minutes on end just staring at me. Eventually he dives, swims under the boat and looks at me from the other side. Meanwhile the BBC forecaster seems to know nothing about the mysterious Scottish outlook so maybe I shall be off again tomorrow. With dry clothes, a good sleep and full of beans. <coughs> Here's an interesting statistic. Did you know that the average length of time people stay with a utility company, that is uh, electricity, gas, telephony, whatever it may be, three years in the UK? They're constantly changing, swapping from one to the other, trying to find something cheaper, something better, somewhere where they don't have to spend hours hanging on the phone talking to customer service. But there is one company where the average length of time people stay with them is now over 20 years. Basically, they never leave. I've been involved with them since 2005. I think they're wonderful. You can find out about it on my blog at Old Man Sailing. Just have a look at the page called Money. Meanwhile, as something of an experiment, 
I'm going to read you a chapter from my novel Trident. It's got nothing to do with sailing, well, not this chapter, but I find that quite a lot of people who've read the old man's sailing book then carry on and read this one. So here's a flavour. There was an urgency about the words Captain to the control room which silenced Vanguard's wardroom. They were past Ireland now and in deep water again, but they still felt vulnerable. Lomas left his meal and went without a word. As he closed the sliding door behind him, he could hear the conversation start up again. Somebody said, Must be a submarine contact. If it was, then the chances were that it was Russian. The way the Soviets had been building them over the last twenty years, you could hardly move in the Atlantic without running into one. Normally Vanguard would go quiet and slip away. The Russians had never once tracked a British Trident submarine. It was different for the fleet boats. They could afford to play a good-natured sort of hide-and-seek. This time Vanguard would be playing it too. This time she had to be found. Only when the Russians had analysed her sound signature and identified her could Lomas break off and disappear. It would be like playing chess and giving away half the pieces. As he came into the control room, Sonar reported, Passive contact bearing 340 distant. He's definitely a submarine, sir. Analysing now. Lomas stood forward of the periscope and waited. There was a faint blip on the outer edge of the display. Then finally, Control, Sonar, contact is an Alpha bearing 340, range 390 miles and closing. Quietly and firmly, Lomas said, Action stations, I have the boat. The officer of the watch already had the microphone in his hand. The order sounded through the submarine. Men began moving to their stations, closing the watertight doors behind them. Lomas checked the plot and started planning. A submarine hides in many ways. It hides from aircraft and satellites by diving. It hides from anti-submarine units by using the contours of the ocean floor and the different temperature layers in the water, the inversion layers. When the enemy is another submarine and the ocean bed is two miles beneath the keel, there is only one option. Lomas studied the temperature graph. Inversion layers are unpredictable, more common in summer and mostly in the tropics. In the North Atlantic he'd be lucky to find one when he wanted it. There was no good news in being up against an Alpha either. It was faster than Vanguard and with its titanium alloy hull it could dive deeper, down to 1,500 metres, so the book said. He wouldn't be able to run, he wouldn't be able to bottom out, he was going to have to be crafty. He plucked the microphone and punched the button for the pipe. This is the captain. We've just met one of our Russian friends, an Alpha. We're going to stick around just long enough to write our signature on his sonar screen and then I'd like to vanish. He paused. The management would like to apologize for any inconvenience. One of the plotters, marking his screen with a chinograph pencil, turned and grinned. Lomas smiled back, and Vanguard kept going, deep into the enemy's sonar range. Then, from the sound room, contact turning right, track 270 and slowing. 
the Russian was an intercept and reducing speed to try and stay hidden. When the range had closed to 20 miles, Lomas began to ease gradually down. The trace on the temperature graph dropped steadily and then began to rise when they reached 150 metres. There was an inversion layer after all. Things were looking up. Lomas said, half power state, revolutions for 10 knots, and then 10 down, port 15, come to 225. The deck canted. Vanguard dropped sharply into the warmer water, effectively drawing a blanket of sound between herself and the Russian. After a minute or two, Sonar reported the contact lost. It was just possible the Russian could still hear them. Sometimes sound travels through water in one direction better than another. But Lomas had little doubt the Alpha was on its way down. Escape now depended on his next move. Evans was watching him ready to anticipate the order. He could double back up, but then he'd be followed once more, and that could go on indefinitely. The time to get away was now, while the two submarines were still well separated. If he gave the impression of returning to the lair and then suddenly went quiet and dropped deep, the Russian would lose time searching for him above it. He levelled and straightened at 350 metres heading southwest. Then he turned to Evans, but he spoke so that everyone in the control room could hear him. We're going to make a break when the Alpha regains contact. I want to crack onto 42 knots and go up 15, and while we're making all that racket, I want to trim for 700 metres. Evans nodded solemnly, refusing to be surprised. Trimming for 700 meant giving the boat greater buoyancy, since at that depth the hull would be squeezed and effectively heavier but dumping that much ballast at only 150 metres could send them out of control to the surface. Lomas went on. Once the Alphas lost us a second time, we stop everything, go quiet, and with 42 knots momentum we plane down. Understood? With some effort, Evans said, Aye, aye, sir, and warned the manoeuvring room to spec the burst at full revs. Then they waited. Vanguard crept along to the southwest giving every impression of a submarine trying to slink away. When the Russian captain picked up their sound again, he'd think himself pretty clever. Whatever the Russian captain was thinking, he wasn't being cautious. He came belting down at 30 knots plus, Sonar resumed the contact at a range of 12 miles. Lomas snapped out his orders, full power state, revs for 42 knots, up 15. He nodded to Evans, and as the high-pressure air filled the pipes for the trimming tanks, Vanguard surged upwards. Growing buoyancy adding to her speed, Lomas watched the temperature graph intently. He'd have to guess this. At high speed and with the enemy behind him, the sonar watch was all but useless. Then, at 100 metres, what's the speed? 36 knots, sir. OK for trim number one. Trim for 700, sir. Right, all stop. Down 15. Port 10. Come to 160. Vanguard slewed round and down, her massive bulk taking over propulsion from her engine. Sonar reported a weak contact, which might have been the Russian lunging upwards. At 610 metres they coasted to a stop, hovering in their element, silent and motionless. They waited there for half an hour. 
Then Sonar reported the Russian hunting above and behind them, cruising back and forth like a blind man who put something down not a moment ago and suddenly can't find it. Occasionally, he stopped to listen. But the only sound Vanguard made in her quiet state was the faint hum of the reactor pumps. And with the plant well damped down, that would not be enough. Lomas imagined the Russian captain ruefully admitting defeat, standing his crew down and reverting to patrol routine. This was the end of the game. Now they would go their separate ways. According to the rules of the game, it was for the Russian to make the first move. He should speed up, which in the clear sound signature to Vanguard's sonar room was as good as saying, OK, you win, and then steam off on a steady course, leaving Vanguard to get underway in her own time. But the Russian didn't do that. He hunted around for another six hours. This was all rather pointless. The watch changed. Lomas ate sandwiches in the control room, and all the while the Russian cruised slowly about above them, sometimes ten or fifteen miles away, sometimes only five. He had obviously worked out what Lomas had done, but that didn't help him pinpoint Vanguard now. Then someone allowed a watertight door to slam. The noise reverberated through the boat. Evans screwed up his face in frustration. They waited, tense now. A one-off noise like that might be missed, but if it hadn't been, if the Russian now had something concrete to work on, they would have to go through the whole routine again. And then they all heard it together. The harsh clang against the hull. The sound room reported instantly, active sonar bearing 1806,000 metres. The astonishment was evident. For an instant, Lomas was transfixed. Nobody used active sonar in these conditions. It instantly gave you away. The only possible reason for it was a final plotting for a torpedo attack. It just didn't make sense. But Lomas didn't think about what made sense. He acted exactly as he'd been trained to. His next order was automatic. Full power state revolutions for maximum speed, 10 down. As Vanguard shivered with the effort of accelerating from a standing start, he added, Stream a decoy. He was going to extraordinary lengths, but something was very wrong here. Sonar cut in. Torpedo discharge bearing 175, range 5,500. Christ, it was for real. Starboard 15, what's the speed? 20 knots, sir. The Russian torpedoes could do almost 70. Lomas's only hope lay in the decoy, even now dropping farther and further astern at the end of its cable. The speed built up, 25 knots, 30, 40. Every minute cut down the rate at which the torpedo was gaining on them, and there was still no sign of the Russian firing a second. There had been a time when British submarines fired their homing torpedoes singly to cut down the interference. The technicians at Faslane had got round it now, but the Russians hadn't. With luck, he could neutralise the entire attack. The critical thing was to judge the right moment to switch on the decoy. Too soon, and the Russian torpedo officer would not have cut the wires and could still order his weapon to ignore it. Too late, and the torpedo would already have overtaken the decoy. Lomas studied the command display. 
He heard the reports coming in. He noted the orders of his officers. But all the time his concentration stayed fixed on the gradually merging points of light on the screen. With 150 meters between the torpedo and the decoy, he said, Activate the decoy. Then, Starboard 10. As Vanguard swung away from the path of the torpedo, its image on the screen appeared to move left. The homing system was locked on the decoy. They heard the explosion before Sonar reported it. Immediately he swung in a tight banking turn that had the control room team bracing themselves against their equipment. Now it was they who were on the attack. Standby for Targetfish attack, two torpedoes, streamer decoy. The two submarines were now racing towards each other with a closing speed of more than 70 knots. But there was no alternative. There was hardly time for the torpedo course calculator to reach a solution before Sonar came on with firing bearing cut and then Lomas, who had never fired a torpedo in anger in his life, said, Fire! The reports came in a flurry. Both torpedoes running. Torpedo discharge bearing 205 range 3000. That was the Russian firing again. He'd left it too late. Lomas had the advantage. Not only did he have two torpedoes running, but he'd fired sooner. That meant he could turn away sooner. It all happened very quickly then. He cut the wires, leaving the Tigerfish 500 metres to run, and turned, banking sharply. The enemy torpedo had a thousand metres to go, and now had to overhaul them. Target drawing right. The Russian was turning away, trying the same trick. Now he, too, would have to chop the wires. The three torpedoes, threshing in opposite directions, were on their own. Lomas watched the display with morbid fascination, his own torpedoes diminishing in intensity, the enemies growing brighter. And then he heard the explosion. He could hear it still rumbling through the water even as Sonar reported the Russian decoy destroyed. But there were still the enemy's fish on his tail. He threw Vanguard around the ocean, swooping up and turning and banking, drawing the decoy time and time again across its nose. Somewhere in the middle of everything else he heard, Explosion on target bearing! That could only be a hit, but it would mean nothing if Vanguard herself was destroyed. Sonar carried on with routine reports of implosion sounds on the target bearing, but no one gave any sign of being distracted. The Russians' last torpedo was closing fast, bent on revenge. Lomas watched it on the display. Starboard ten, six down, three hundred metres, and the spark on the screen began to veer away to the left, closing with the decoy. When the explosion came, it was close. Very close, it picked up Vanguard and flung the submarine bodily forwards and upwards. Lomas grabbed at the periscope to save himself from falling. Pencils and clipboards, cups and half the loose paraphernalia of the control room cascaded to the deck. And then everything went quiet. Lomas ordered all stop for a sonar sweep. Even without it, he could hear the distorted rending sounds of the Russian submarine being crushed as it dropped into the increasing pressure of deep water. There would be men inside her, still alive, men fighting against the ocean that poured in on them, and there wasn't one in Vanguard's control room who didn't realise it could so easily have been the other way round. They didn't cheer, they didn't clap each other on the back, nobody spoke. They sat, facing the front, staring at their consoles. Lomas felt proud of them for that.
there would be those in the after-ends who had only the sketchiest idea of what had happened. He didn't feel like saying anything. He felt drained and confused, but he took up the microphone, paused for a second, and then pressed the button. This is the captain. We have torpedoed and sunk a Soviet Alpha which attacked us with torpedoes. I don't know why any more than you do. It's something we can only hope will become clear in time. Meanwhile, despite whatever anxieties we must all feel at this moment, I want to say thank you for the way you have worked in the past few hours. We trained hard for this, and it paid off. Well done. Evans was watching him. He thought with an expression of sympathy. Lomas said, Thank you, number one. Stand down now. As I said, a bit different. You can find a link to it on my blog at oldmansailing.com.